Hey friends, your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish. Today, we are going to take a look at chapter two of Wild Beyond the Witchlight. I have already done a couple of other videos where I looked at doing a session zero for Wild Beyond the Witchlight and a, a, an episode where we talked about chapter one. I probably will be doing episodes like this for each of the main chapters of the book, so you can expect as many shows as there are chapters. And I will be doing them after I have completed the entire chapter. So once I've run the chapter for my group, I can look back on it and I can try to offer my best advice and, and share my experiences running this chapter so that we can all learn from what we're doing today. So I wanted to start off the show, This I wanted to start off this video by talking about my biggest tips. My I tried to do three and I failed. I had four and I couldn't decide which one to get rid of. So I said, we'll just do four. So I wanted to start with my four biggest tips for running chapter two of Wild Beyond the Witchlight. Some of these are general tips that you can kind of use throughout the whole book, but then some are a little bit specific. So the first thing is that you want to you want to understand what the theme of this campaign is. And maybe it's different for you than it is for me. But for me, the real theme of this campaign is like whimsy, whimsy and wonder. This is not Rhyme of the Frost Maiden or Descent into Avernus. This is a different kind of campaign where whimsy and wonder are the real themes of the overall campaign. There's just, it's a fun, funny, wild place to be. A wild beyond the witchlight, right? A wild place to be. And you want to reinforce that all over the place. And you can reinforce it with every NPC that they meet, with every interaction that they have with either other characters themselves or the environment, with the locations that they visit, with the secrets and the clues that they discover. Really, all of the different things that you are dripping into your game. Think about like, where is this kind of fitting into the whimsy and wonder? What's the, what's the interesting thing about these NPCs that make them whimsical and wondrous? And I think the adventure does a fantastic job of offering NPCs that are like this. When you look at NPCs like Sir Talavar the Fairy Dragon or Jingle Jangle with the keys, these are, these are fun, whimsical NPCs to me. The whole soggy court is a fantastic place for whimsy and wonder and just good, good times, right? And you want to reinforce that throughout the entire, throughout the entire campaign. At the same time, you also want to reinforce why the characters are doing what they're doing. And it's easy to get lost in the environment and lost in the NPCs and lost in that whimsy and wonder and forget, what are we doing here? And a little about, a little of that is okay. Cause it is this crazy place and it is wild. And they do kind of lose track of things. Cause that's sort of very Peter Panny, very Alice in Wonderland style. So it's okay for them to kind of lose track a little bit, but you should every so often steer back to the to two main goals that they have in this campaign. I, I like to, by the way, I know that there's two main quests. I like to just combine them both together because I think you can really take both quests and mash them together really well. And those are recovering the lost things. The characters have lost their things. They have come to find them again. Where are they and how do they get them back, right? I think that that is one, that is the main thing you want to reinforce to them. If they lose track, you want to remind them, well, you did lose your things here, right? Or you think that this, this hag, you know, that you, you think that Slackjaw Lorna, Bavlorna might either have or know about your lost things. You can also drop in like uh, dream sequences or visions that they have that show the, that show the hourglass coven, you know, toying with these lost things that they've taken from the characters. That is a way to reinforce, oh, that's right. I've got to go get this thing, right? So that's one. The other one is also like helping them uncover the mystery of, of Zabilna's imprisonment, right? And this is something that, you know, you can, you can start in your, in your early sessions that this is something they want to do. They can learn more about this. They can learn that Prismere is fractured, that it's spreading apart, that bad things are starting to happen because Zabilna's not around. 
right? And you can start to plug in secrets like the fact that she was close with the Hourglass Coven before they betrayed her, that she isn't, that they're not the only ones that betrayed her, that there's this other group out there, this League of Malevolent, Malevolence, who were like mercenaries that had some involvement. And there was some secret that the Hourglass Coven had about Zabilna. You can start to drop these things in there so that they're starting to learn more about Zabilna's imprisonment. They can learn that Zabilna's imprisoned. Right. And that because of her imprisonment is why Prismere is breaking apart. So you want to throw these in. You can do them as secrets and clues. Every session, drop a couple of hints, you know, remind them about their lost things. Give them little hints about Zabilna's uh, imprisonment and keep pulling them into that general story. The other thing is to think about what the main key is for this entire chapter. There is really one key. There's one thing that they need in order to progress in the adventure. And that thing is Clapperclaw. Clapperclaw is the guide that can take them from hither to thither. It's the only way to get across. So there's lots of ways. You can put Clapperclaw anywhere you want. You can put in all kinds of clues about what Clapperclaw needs. Things that Clapperclaw requires, like his new skull helmet, right? A cool, a cooler, you know, a cooler headpiece than his current headpiece, which is like a gourd, is a good way for him to kind of send the characters to do other quests that you might want them to do before he's willing to take them over the thither. But if you decide that you want to get over there quickly, that's a you can. You, this is a very malleable key, clapper claw. You can you can drop them right in the beginning, right? If you wanted to, you could have five minutes in hither and say you meet clapper claw, and clapper claw says let's go to thither instead. So you, clap, where you put in clapper claw and what clapper claw requires to take you from hither to thither, those are those are variables you can tune to make this chapter run well. But you're going to need to have Clapperclaw in there somewhere if you want to have this go from one place to the other. My final main tip uh, for running of these initial tips for running chapter two is that Longscarf, Agdon Longscarf, is a really dangerous NPC. That He's supposed to be fun and whimsical with his crazy blue scarf and all his hopping around, but he does like 20 points of damage with his with his branding iron and you're only like level two. So he can drop characters very, very easily. He, he can do more damage than the maximum hit points of most second level characters or almost any second level character. Not quite, I guess barbarians and some have more. So one way to deal with this very simple tweak that just makes sure that he's not too deadly. Cause again, you want to focus on whimsy and wonder and that whimsy and wonder kind of falls apart. If you've got a guy burning people to death, right? So what I recommend is that for his attack, you can turn this dial a little bit and he only attacks twice if he misses his first attack, right? So have him make his first attack, hit it with, with his branding iron. And if he hits, that's it. He's done with his attacks. If he misses his first attack, maybe he whirls around and hits again with another attack, right? Or maybe he uses his dagger against another opponent. But you don't, just because an NPC has multi-attack doesn't mean they have to multi-attack every time. We don't have to optimize the monster constantly. Instead, he could be having fun, dancing around, poking him with a dagger, then maybe a dangerous one if, if there's somebody that's hitting him. Think about the motivation of Agnon Longscruff, which is enjoying himself is far <laughs> more of his motivation than beating the hell out of the characters, right? So I think that, you you know, unless your characters are having way too easy a time with him, consider that his multi-attack doesn't always have to be two branding irons to the face, that instead he could go with a branding iron and a dagger, or he might only attack once and then only attack with a second attack if he feels like the timing is right, because he's just really, really hard otherwise. It, that can be a really, really hard fight if he's, if he's doing that kind of thing. So those are my four main tips, but I also have lots of other thoughts about running, about running this chapter. And I wanted to talk about those, I wanted to talk about those, those tips as well. 
one of the things I really love about Wild Beyond the Witchlight is that this adventure, more so than I would say most of the Wizards of the Coast published adventures, can be run without modification or very little modification to make it really fun. There's only a handful of adventures that I feel this way about. I feel this way about Curse of Strahd. I feel this way about Tomb of Annihilation. And I think even like in the case of like Tomb of Annihilation, I think there's definitely more modifications that you have to do to Tomb of Annihilation to get it to work. And looking ahead a little bit at future chapters for Wild Beyond the Witchlight, particularly the last chapter, I think there's some modifications that need to be made to make that chapter really good. But so far, chapter one and chapter two, I think you can run them large, largely as written and they work they work pretty well. So there's only small little tweaks, things like little Agdon stuff and things like reinforcing that. But recall that you, you don't have to change a lot in this one. And I think that's not true for a lot of ones. I did not feel this way about Rime of the Frostmaiden, and I did not feel this way about Descent into Avernus, the last two big hardcover campaign adventures that I ran. Both of those required a lot of, of modification for me to enjoy running it, right? I didn't feel that way about this one, which is why I don't do as many videos and I'm not doing as many tips about it because it doesn't need them nearly as much as some of those other ones did. I have talked about dreadful incursions in previous videos as well. As a summary, one of the fun things that I wanted to do when I'm running Wild Beyond the Witchlight is take the worlds that exist, the, the domains of dread that exist in Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft and sort of inject those into Wild Beyond the Witchlight in areas where it is fun to do so. And what this does is it can change the theme a little bit, which is dangerous, right? If you, it can make things a little too dark if you, if you use this tool too much. I've noticed this when I've been running it. But when it runs the right way, you can still reinforce whimsy and, and wonder, but also have this kind of darker circumstance. And, and so what I do is I basically have some of these domains of dread bleed into Prismere. And you will see components of those domains of dread in Prismere. So you can take some worlds like Falkovnia or Haslan, or Darkon, and you can inject components of these that are written up in Van Richten's Guide and show pieces of them. I did this with Falkovnia early on. I've actually done it with Falkovnia a couple of times. I used Falkovnia as a land that they went over when they were going from hither to thither on their big balloon. The balloon, actually this big colorful balloon, is going over this zombie-infested wasteland of castles and ruins and knights you know, who are battling against this onslaught of undead. It was really interesting, right? And even some of the knights are like looking up like, is that a balloon? Like, is that a big bright colored balloon in our land of, of gray? I used Haslan. I actually had an entire dungeon, an incursion where parts of Haslan had broken into Prismere, had broken into Hither, and there was an anchor. There was something inside this dungeon that had kind of burrowed its way out into hither that they had to break or destroy to break the connection between these two worlds and send it back to its domain to the domains of dread and in this case it was just like a corrupted tree in one of the dungeons but it was a fun way to add a dungeon with different monsters different themes different things going on and still have like a lot of fun with with the with the witch light adventure and People that exist, you know, NPCs that are inside Prismere, that are inside Hither, can notice like something really bad is happening over there, right? There's actually one whole section that's a battlefield. I think it's one of the random encounters where there's a battlefield. It would be really interesting to make that battlefield a battlefield of Falkovnia with zombies that are coming out and knights that are going there. And the knights are like, they're kind of lost and they're, they can't, they don't understand, but there's some artifact. I, one of the things I've been doing with Dreadful Incursions is the incursion is caused because there is an anchor. There is some physical object that has connected the worlds together and the anchor needs to be broken or shattered or removed. 
And it might be an object that exists in Prismere that made its way into the Domain of Dread or vice versa. I actually dropped the unicorn horn in as one of those objects that the unicorn horn had sort of gotten lost. And when it did, it rolled into another world. In this case, it rolled into the world of Blutspur. This is the world of mind flayers who are worshiping an elder brain, right? And that talk about two worlds that are different. This is in the middle of the soggy court, right? This is in the middle of this place. They found they, the, 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 the big pot that exists inside the, the soggy court had dumped over. What's that place called? Yeah, in, in Downfall, there is a great big pot that was put there by Bavlorna and it had tipped over. And when it tipped over, the, the unicorn horn was actually in the pot, but it rolled through because of the dreadful incursions that are breaking through. And it landed just like on the inside of Blutspur. And so the characters had to like go in there and grab it. And they fought one of like the vampire mind flayers that exist. That's like lurking around on the surface. And like another mind flayer saw the incursion there. And it was this way of connecting Blutspur, this twisted nightmarish realm to the soggy court, to downfall in, in Hither. And that was this really neat connection. It was fun, hard fight, fun, fun combat for the characters, neat way to see things. No, no worry about killing a mind flayer vampire because it wasn't nearly as bad. I think I had to tune it down a little bit because it's pretty hard. But that that so that that dreadful incursion really worked well. I've been dropping them in. I like them. I always have to make sure to like add the whimsy. So an example was when they're in downfall, when they were fighting in that incursion, and they their this big pot had opened up this great big rift to this nightmarish realm of Blutspur, and they're fighting this vampire. You know, in a boat nearby are a couple of bullywugs dressed to the nines with their big frilly frocks, and one has like a parasol, and they're like, "Are you okay over there? You know, is everything all right? You know, what, what, what? You're not causing any kind of disturbance. Is this one of those like theater shows, right?" And it was hysterical that you had like these two commenters, you know, in their boat, like all dressed up, these two frog people all dressed up that are just like riffing with the characters while the characters are fighting for their lives against this nightmare. Because this idea that like the people that are inside, that, that are inside Prismere, don't, they can't really see. They don't have the same connection to the incursions that the characters do. The characters are seeing it far more accurately. So for them, it's like this fuzzy thing, right? And that's, a, that's something I've been reinforcing. So I really do like how Dreadful Incursions have been working out. I, I, I'm probably going to write an article on Slyflare specifically about Dreadful Incursions because I think they're a really neat way to kind of inject things into this, into the witch light, you know, into this whole campaign. I've really enjoyed reinforcing, and I think it's important to reinforce the rules of conduct because they do take place throughout the entire adventure. The, the rules of conduct are covered early on in chapter, in chapter two, and they are the kinds of things that everybody can learn about. Now, the interesting thing about these rules is that not everybody follows them. And why they're not following them is pretty interesting. That, that the, the hourglass coffin kind of follows them when it suits them. Some other people just are happy to steal all the time. You know, like Agdon Longscarf is like, we don't care. We just rip people off, right? We don't follow the rule of ownership and own rule of reciprocity. Nah, we just take what we want, right? Because they don't, because like no one's, no, no one's watching the candy store, right? It's great. No one's around. We can just do this stuff, right? Before I, I got hung by my scarf for nasty things that I did. Not anymore, right? So I think that can show how things are breaking down, that some are trying to hang on to these, these rules. Like the, the soggy court hangs on to these rules, but it's also starting to break down too. So that's, it's something that's worth reinforcing while we're running, while we're running the game. Yeah, Scipio brings up that like the coven interprets ownership in a very self-serving way, that they own anything in their realm, right? And they, the things that they have to give and the things that they take, 
they don't they don't follow the rules the same way. There's a lot of ways to manage your upward and downward beats in this game, right? And actually, the dreadful incursions are a good way to have some downbeats when you need them. If it's a little too whimsical, things are just, you know, like there's no battles. Nobody's actually rolled a die in a while. They're just exploring. Some really love that, right? But sometimes you're like, no, we want something hardcore. Having the dreadful incursions around and kind of planning and prepping a couple of dreadful incursion ideas like either a small location or maybe even a small dungeon and some monsters and you can put those in a package that you can move wherever you need them you can certainly do that in this chapter because you have the, those oh wells right any of the oh wells can be anywhere and any of those oh wells could be a incursion point to something far worse so you can drop in this is one of those weird cases where you might need to prep your downward beats a little bit because the whole place is so optimistic all the time, right? Everybody's real happy. Nobody really wants to fight all the time. Sure, Agnon locks are and things like that definitely do. But in this case, you might actually have to prep some downbeats. And I think like having a couple of dreadful incursions on hand, having a couple of like small world, you know, interesting things that are kind of broken into through the world, areas where they're going to fight things. Imagine you have a well and a bunch of ghouls are pouring out and those ghouls are coming from some other realm, right? I think that's a neat thing to do. But you also have a lot of good options for upward beats when you need them too. The inn at the end of the road is a good upward beat. This inn that comes in. The fact that it's a house that's walking around on feet freaks people out because it makes them think of Baba Yaga and they're like, oh, this is definitely going to be bad. But when they go in, it turns out to be this really nice place. That's a little hard to deal with. You got to kind of make it clear to them that you're not all going to be eaten, right? You're not all going to be turned into cookies if you go into this place, which is hard. Characters, you know, like, oh, it's dangerous, right? We know that there's some bad stuff out there. Of the silt walkers, the, the hobgoblin silt walkers, really fun NPCs that you can kind of talk to. They're not really causing any trouble. They don't really want any trouble, but they can pass some information along. And in some cases, they might just wander by. And you're just like, what the hell are those guys? A bunch of people on stilts walking around, picking up things out of the ground, right? So it can be really fun. But you want to, you want to, you know, when you're running this game, anytime you're prepping a session for it, I think it's worth having a list of like, what are some of the interesting encounters that are upward beats? What are some of their downward beats? And then you drop them in when you need them, depending on how the game feels while you're running it. The good news with this is that there is lots of, uh, there's lots of options. One of the random encounters is for a thing called the stream of visions. And the stream of visions is a great way to reinforce the main themes that you want for this campaign. They might actually see a vision of Zabilna frozen. They might see the palace, right? The, the final palace, that final zone. It's a great way of foreshadowing interesting things that are going to happen in the future. And you can, some of the things you can reinforce, you can, you can reinforce who, which hags have which lost items. This is up for you too. And, and make sure to write this down, which hag has which lost item from which character, because that's going to definitely be a big play. But for them to be able to see like one of the hags who has like a, 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 a music box and there's like a small figurine of the character who's turning inside the music box singing because they've lost all their entire ability to sing, right? They're a bard who can't sing or some whatever lost thing. Figure out what the physical metaphor is for the lost item. And then have them see a vision of one of the hags holding this thing. It might be the first time they see the hags actually, right? And it's a great way to reinforce. This is your perfect time to foreshadow all kinds of things that you want to foreshadow, which means doing a little bit of homework, reading ahead, reading the chapters ahead, figuring out what kinds of things are, they're going to face uh, as they go. I mentioned that the waterlogged battlefield could be a great incursion site. That's one. The O-Wells and the battlefields are both great places to drop in these dreadful incursions if you like that idea. And if you don't, that's totally cool, right? Like not the dreadful incursions, I don't think, for everybody. So, you know, I think that can that can definitely work. One thing I like to do is to make Telemy Hill. Telemy Hill is a really neat place. It's a giant sentient hill, right? And it's sort of protecting, it's protecting Jingle Jangles, right? And I like the idea that the, the hill is dangerous, right? The hill will kill you, right? The hill... 
if you don't mess with the hill and I think of it like Fangorn forest and in, in, in the two towers, right? It's yeah, it's, it's just a hill, but it's old and it's, it can get mad and it's protective of jingle jangle. I think you can reinforce that, you know, you can have like, I don't know, dead, dead, uh, red caps who tried to come there to grab, to grab her up or whatever. Right. And they're like dismembered hanging from trees. You don't have to be too grim and cruel, cruel with it. But I think making it a little sinister again, that's a dial you can turn. How sinister should it be? Should it be really sinister because everybody's been super happy? You could do that. If it's like, everybody's been really grim all the time. Maybe it's just kind of goofy, you know, turn that dial. Keep, keep, keep the dial going. Oh man. The soggy court was one of my favorite parts of this adventure it is it was hysterical and you don't want to blow you don't you don't want to the blow the punchline that this place is like right out of sunday afternoon at lagrand right by surat so you know you 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 think about the soggy court and like they're going to go in and it's going to be this like grim dismal place with like brutal bullywugs right and then they go in and it's like you know a sunday on lagrand right by by surat it's this they all have little parasols they're all dressed in like Victor- bad victorian garb they're in little boats like paddling around it's hysterical right and the surface it's this like very somber they've all they're all talking oh hello there right what they're doing the sideways waves great place but then Underneath is this sinister plots and they're so dumb, right? The plots that they have against one another are so dumb and you want to like reinforce those plots. It's really great for like to understand that, oh no, we're definitely like a, a patriarchy here. We definitely have like an emperor or a king and the king rules and their family line rules. Well, how long is the family line rule? Oh, about two weeks. Why? Because they murdered the last one and they took over. So it's like, it's a family line, but nobody's ever had more than like three weeks. And then all the emperor heads, right? There's this grim moment where you see all the heads of all the former leaders up on stakes, but then they all start talking to one another and they're like, oh, I was definitely the best one. You know, I lasted three whole weeks before I was assassinated. It's hysterical. And the idea that there's this great big plot and the whole plot is I'm going to pretend to trip and then stab him in the eye with a knife. It's great. So, so play off of that. My characters had this great time where they're like, should we do something about this? Or it's like, is this just the natural way here in downfall? Is this just how the soggy court works? And should we just, you know, maintain the prime directive and then things go, do we interrupt it or do we just jump in? Right. And it's just, Oh, it's so much fun. And there's actually a fair bit of material in the DMs Guild. I didn't really get a chance to use much of it because, I, again, I felt like the book did a pretty good job and my own ideas sort of filled it in. But if you want more, there's definitely a lot of DM Guild supplements that offer even more sort of intrigue in this. But you don't want so much intrigue that it actually becomes complicated unless that's like, really funny but the idea that there's a diagram on a wall a great big picture on a wall of a, of one bully wug tripping and getting ready to stab the other one right and you could just play that out you know it can you can play it out and it was so much fun it was so much fun to play and the characters like figuring that out just a wonderful time i really loved the whole soggy court it was really really fun now there's also lots of options for dealing with Bavlorna and dealing with her cottage itself. The, the, again, the adventure has really good points. I didn't, in some cases, the errands that she sent them on, I thought weren't great, but the errand that works really well is my pool doesn't work anymore. Right. And I had her when she has like a big inner tube and a flowery, uh, a, a big flowery swimsuit, you know, and she like wants to get on her inner tube and her swimsuit and swim around and Aaron's like, Oh God, I don't want to see that. Right. 
and then, but it doesn't help her, right? So her skin's all cracked and scabby and stuff because it's too acidic, right? That that plot works really well. And them working with Bavlorna is one definite way that they can go. But then they can also start working against Bavlorna. And a real good option for that is Charm, right? Charm is this darkling elder that is with Bavlorna who is betraying her. And the characters could work the two off of each other or they could end up working with one of them. And one thing I did with Charm that I thought worked really well is that Charm is a free agent. She kind of is working for and against any or all of the hags. And that way she's sort of this malleable variable that you can put in where she can she can disappear and she can come back. She could show up in another place. She could offer conflicting different ways of handling a situation because she's like, look, you know, I'm I'm I'll betray anybody for anything. Right. So so she can be a really fun NPC to kind of work the angles. In my game, she ended up giving the characters she actually got her balloon and it was her balloon with Clapperclaw on board that got the characters to escape from uh, Bavlorna's hut, which, of course, set on fire and the whole upper floor was starting to collapse while they were floating away in their balloon. So whether or not Bavlorna actually figures this out that it was them or even cares, who could say? You know, Bavlorna's happy. Her pool's back. So she might go, oh, yeah, that happens. Sometimes the upper floor combusts and then whatever. I have some of my bullywood friends make it. So there's, you know, you can definitely think of these again, situation-based you know, a situation-based D&D game. Establish the situation, give them a goal, and let the characters navigate the situation. Do they go sneaking around, stealing things? Do they negotiate with Bavlorna and figure out a way to get it? Do they work Bavlorna against Charm? Do they work Charm against Bavlorna? Lots of different stuff that they can do. And Charm is a really, a really good way to do it. Choose when you're going to drop in the unicorn horn. I, I, you know, you can roll on it, and that's certainly a way to go. I decided, no, I'm going to pick a place because I'm going to forget. I'll, I'll be like three-fourths through this adventure and go, oh, crap, I was supposed to give a unicorn horn, right? I would totally forget. So I decided to drop the unicorn horn in the big pot, in Bob Lorna's big pot inside of Downfall. And again, I tied it to a dreadful incursion. It rolled through the pot and ended up in Blutspur, and they had to find Might Flayer vampires to get it. I think you can, you know, that's a definite fun anchor. This unicorn horn being a fun anchor is also a really good upward beat. They got this powerful unicorn horn and I, I gave it some abilities. I gave it some like ability to remove curse and to heal a little bit of the unicorn's powers inside of this horn. I thought that was a fun way to go. So they got sort of a magic item after defeating this really hard mind flayer vampire that almost. A friend of the show, Scipio, who's right here in the chat, mentioned that there's really no great place to drop in merchants. That if you want to have any kind of commerce going on in here, it's not clear who has it. There, there are some options particularly in in the next chapter, you have Nib from Nib's Cave who could kind of do a little bit of commerce, right? But there's not a great, there's no like central merchant. The inn, the inn is a place where you could have a merchant who's there who will sell things and buy things. And maybe that they have a figure, figured out a way to walk through worlds. The point is that you might need to drop in some kind of merchant who can sell things to the characters and buy things from the characters. And maybe they have to sell or buy using weird weird things that are that are native to this realm and remember the things that they can use as as currency here can be anything right it could be like one person is like i just want your toenails do you have do you have some toenail clippings i'll just take your toenail clippings or somebody could be like do you have a memory give me a happy memory and i'll take it right that's a common one or you know tell me a story tell me a story that you know tell me a dark story that that is grim that you want to tell me or tell me a happy story right sing a song for me there's all kinds of things that they can do that count as this this gift of reciprocity so there's opportunities for that but you might have to add something like that yourself because the game the the, the adventure itself they don't have a lot of ways for you to be able to buy and sell items as you go and they might go in without a lot of stuff because they rent right through the mirror in chapter one some of the locations in this chapter can feel a little empty empty the tower for example 
doesn't really have anything in it. It's a great big empty tower. I actually dropped a little bit of an incursion in there. It was sort of like, I think I just had some sort of shadow felly things in there, right? And I didn't really run much with the tower. But you could. You could actually fill the tower. You could put a whole map in there, and you could have them explore the tower and try to find something. You Again, if you're going to go with the dreadful incursion, you could have the tower be this, you know, half the tower is inside the world. The other half of the tower is actually in some other realm, right? That could be kind of a fun way. And they have to go to the top of the tower to get whatever the anchor is and pull the anchor free and then go back down again and then close it up so that the tower is not creating this rift between two worlds. That could be a fun thing to do, but you may have to add some of that yourself. You can always add small dungeons underneath hills. You can add all kinds of things. Again, you have that like battle battleground. There's no reason. If you want to have more dungeony sort of stuff, you can do that. But it, a trick about that is that leveling in this adventure is actually pretty slow. That you you level from first to second level, going from chapter one to chapter two. You go through almost all of chapter two at second level until you see Bavlorna. And the first time you see Bavlorna, that's when you go to third level. I changed that. I said I'm going to have them go to third level. The minute they get to downfall, the minute they get past Agdon Longscarf, the minute they get to downfall, that is their level three mark. And then their level four mark is getting over into Thither. And that that worked, but it, it's a long time. So if you run too much stuff here, too many dungeons, too many side quests, too many other things, they're going to be sitting at level two for a long time. So that's something you have to consider. Could you have them level three, level to third level faster? Maybe, you know, but then, and then you're kind of adjusting everything else as you go, right? You kind of have to figure all that out. So the main thing is I don't think I'd put too much stuff uh, in this adventure. A thing to consider with Wild Beyond the Witchlight, it is a, it's not a slow adventure. It isn't a 14, 16-month-long campaign. It might be a pretty short one. This is a lot more along the lines of Waterdeep Dragon Heist where you're really only getting to you know, a certain level and it's, and it's going to be pretty quick. I, I do not expect this adventure to take nearly as long as some of the other campaign adventures that I've run. And that's not a knock on it. I still think I still think it is an excellent adventure. So just a couple, a couple of final tips here. One thing that you can do is you can drop in lots of foreshadowing of the League of Malevolence. The League of Malevolence is like an interesting group that is tied in with a lot of different plot lines here. And you can sort of drop in that they've been wandering about. There's other outworlders who are wandering about doing things. And I've even played with the idea that maybe one of the one or more of the League of Malevolence actors is actually engaged with some of the dreadful incursions that maybe one of the they they're holding on to one of the anchors that's keeping one around i don't know how i'm going to let that play on in the future but you can foreshadow that there's you know there's shady folk walking around these woods right folk from other worlds that are not here you know and call themselves ironically the league of malevolence the other thing you could do is there's a question about when you should show the maps and my question is i i, I just show them immediately i think they're beautiful maps they're so good looking and I don't think they really give a lot of spoilers and it's pretty easy to say that an NPC has one of the maps and shows it to them. So, so far I've been showing them the maps of each of the realms that they're in. I've shown them the map of Hither so that they could see that entire map. My game has actually been switching from online to in-person play, but I'm very lucky. One of the players in my game has the Beetle and Grimm set. So I have this whole map pack, tons of maps that I can use for this game. So that actually, that actually worked very well. So those are my big tips for running chapter two. Again, I, I adore this adventure. It's a beautiful adventure. It's been really fun to run. 
I've really enjoyed it. And I actually have a lot less to say about it because it runs very well. So I hope you enjoyed this, this video. If you did, you can help me out in four ways. You can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. You can support me directly on Patreon. You can subscribe to my videos here on YouTube, or you can pick up any of my books. Links for all of these are in the show notes below. Thank you very much for watching my video. Have a great day. Get out there and play some D&D.